Hi, this is Emer Quinn. Have you ever heard of the Eurovision Song Contest? Well, I'm a winner of Eurovision and I'm going to be here to talk about following your dream on Follow Your Dream podcast with Robert Miller. Everyone has a dream. Robert Miller is a musician who had a dream to become a rock star. He followed his dream and he succeeded. If you're ready to pursue and succeed at your dream, then listen up and get inspired and motivated to take action today. Welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Follow Your Dream podcast with listeners in 200 countries. My guest today is the great Brendan Graham. He is perhaps Ireland's most famous lyricist and songwriter. He wrote the lyrics for the 2002 song, You Raise Me Up, which is one of the biggest and most recorded songs of all time. Yes, you heard me correctly, of all time. It was a number one hit in the US for Josh Groban, and it's been recorded, I'm told, in over 50 different languages by over a thousand artists. That's hard to believe. Graham wrote four of Ireland's entries in the Eurovision Song Contest, and he won with two of them, Rock and Roll Kids in 1994 and The Voice in 1996, which was sung by Emer Quinn, who previously was a guest on this podcast. In total, his songs have sold over 100 million units. He's like the Beatles of Ireland. He also wrote a lullaby, called Sleep On for Prince George, son of William and Catherine, the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge. And in the middle of this episode, as I do with all my musician guests, we are going to do what I call a song fest, where we're going to play a handful of Brendan's greatest hits, and we're going to talk about them, and you'll get the backstories, and nobody else does this in podcasts. And you also know if you're a regular listener of this podcast that I feature a song of mine in every episode underneath the introduction and at the end. And I always try to make that song relevant somehow to my guest. And in this instance, my featured song is called The Gift, Juliet Song, from the album Play by my band Project Grand Slam. I chose this song because, as I just said, Brendan wrote a lullaby for the young prince, and I wrote a lullaby for my young princess, my granddaughter, Juliet. So I thought that that worked. So, Brendan Graham, I want to welcome you to the Follow Your Dream podcast, baby. Hi. Thanks, Robert. That's a great introduction. And it's good to be in the company of a fellow songwriter. Um, delighted to be here. Thank you. Thank you so much. But I'm not in your category. And I'm thinking to myself, if you never wrote another song other than You Raise Me Up, I got to figure that you must be a zillionaire from the royalties from that one song. I'll have to put you out collecting some of them. I think a lot of the zillionaire stuff is still out there around the world. Some of it has come in. I'll grant you that. Well, it's a fantastic thing. I'm trying to think of any song that's up there as an equivalent. The only one I could come up with that I know of is Yesterday by the Beatles. Which one has got more uh, action going on? Oh, I'd say oh, I'd say Yesterday. And, and there are great classics like Crazy and all of these songs that are 
great classics. But yeah, uh, yes, uh, uh, as I say sometimes about You Raise Me Up, it's a song that never sleeps. And when I'm sleeping, I get up in the morning, I turn on my computer and I find out somebody is using it for an ad in Nigeria. And a couple of days ago, it's in a, a new dark thriller that's coming out of China. So it's quite extraordinary to think that something that you wrote in your own little corner in Dublin, uh, this one was written, finds its way out wherever it wants to go. And, and in a sense, we just stand on the sideline and watch and are amazed and, and grateful. That is a remarkable statement, not only about music, but so much of our lives today. Same thing with this podcast. As I mentioned at the beginning, this podcast has now got listeners in 200 countries, not because I set out to get them. It just happened. And your song has traveled around the world. That must be a terrific feeling, huh? Well, it is. And 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 like many things, um, it was all rather random. I mean, it's rather random how I became a songwriter. I'm actually an industrial engineer and I worked in production and manufacturing and I was made redundant at the age of 48. So I had no job, uh, five daughters, all at various uh, stages of schooling. And uh, I had been tipping away at songs as a kind of hobby at night and at the weekends. And this was in 1993, I was made redundant. So I thought, oh God, I'll have to give this songwriting a go. And I didn't know in Ireland, anyone else who was purely writing songs. Any, anybody else I knew who was writing songs was also um, performing. So that was 1993. And then in 1994, I had this song called Rock and Roll Kids which uh, won the Eurovision Song Contest. So I actually began to earn from songwriting. And then two years later, uh, The Voice uh, turned up again with Emer. So uh, to my surprise, I was able to put bread on the table from writing songs. That's an amazing story. Now, do you have training as a musician? <laughs> no. I went to the nuns, uh, the good Catholic nuns when I was a young fella up to the age of 12 uh, for piano lessons and uh, was was sort of coerced into learning how to play a couple of traditional Irish songs. But I hated it and I gave it up. And I remember at one stage I used to duck my music lessons. Um, I was in another town. I was going to a teacher. So in the middle of summer, I'd have a big raincoat on. I'd have my music book stuck inside the raincoat so nobody would see me. I'd go and I'd sit on the teacher's steps until the, the half hour lesson was up and then I'd go home. <laughs> it was kind of stupid because everybody in the town saw me and they'd go into my dad and say, saw your son sitting on the steps downtown of the teacher. So, no, I had no training. I'm sorry I didn't because um, I could probably do more with arrangements and so on now. But on the other hand, I'm not a singer as such either, which is a sort of a liberation because I'm not writing songs just for myself. I can write any kind of songs I want. And if I need to put in high notes, I can go into falsetto. And uh, my good friend, Bill Whelan, who wrote Riverdance, said to me once, he was helping me out with some, some demos. He said, Brendan, 
do you not like singers? And I said, I love singers, Bill. Why, why would you ask me that? And he said, because you write awful difficult songs for some of them to sing. So, so I'm thankful, just like being made redundant, I'm thankful for what I haven't got because I think it actually benefits me in some strange way. Well, you know, there are examples of other famous songwriters that really had no training musically at all. And I'm, I'm thinking of uh, John Lennon and Paul McCartney. Who are they now? Yeah, exactly. Who are they? Nobody <laughs> remembers them anymore. I'm not even sure that Irving Berlin had musical training. Well, he played everything in the key of C, didn't he? Actually, what I heard was that he wrote everything in F sharp. Well, obviously, there's two stories going around, but I write everything in C because it's the only key I can sort of manage to get any sort of range in. But go back because this part I find fascinating. Okay, you, you had an industrial job. You said it was redundant. I guess that means you were let go. Yes. And you decided that you wanted to give a shot at music. What did you do? What was your first move in that regard? Did you just start writing? And was it lyrics initially? Was it music? Was it a combination? Tell me how you got started. Well, I'll tell you how it started. And it's all thanks to Fats Domino. Fats Domino was doing a concert in the National Boxing Stadium in Dublin, and I was a big fan of his. So I went to the concert and he rolled out all the hits, you know, Jambalaya, Can I, I Want to Walk You Home, all of those songs. And I had come from work, so I was in a suit and shirt and tie. And most of the people who were there were also in suits and ties. But as the concert went on, people began to stand up. I'm talking about now early 1990s. People began to stand up and boogie in the in the aisleways. And the thought hit me, these are all rock and roll kids. Underneath the conservatism and the suits and ties, they're all rock and roll kids. So I thought that'd be a great title for a song. And all I had was a small purple uh, entrance ticket and I had no pen. So there was a swish looking accountant guy sitting beside me and he let me borrow his uh, gold pen, but he kept an eye on me. I had to give it back. And I wrote down the title, Rock and Roll Kids. And then I went home and I started to create a song about the notion that once we we're all rock and roll kids and we listen to Elvis on the radio, and then as we get older through life, we change and our kids are listening to music and they don't want to be around us. And now we never rock and roll anymore. So that's where that song came from. And I entered it for the Irish qualifying section of the Eurovision Song Contest. And I entered it the first year, got no word back, didn't qualify. I entered it again, second year, nothing. And you could only enter one song. And everybody was saying to me, oh, no, no, no. You know, they don't like it. Don't enter it again. But I just had belief in it that if it got through the early stages, that it, it because it was so different, it could go on and win. So I entered it for the third year and it got selected by RTE. Let me ask you this. When you say you entered it, do you enter, do you enter it with somebody singing it? Do you enter just the, uh, the, the, the written notes? What, what is it that you enter? I entered a very simple demo. 
which was a man called Paul Harrington singing it and playing piano. And I'm a great believer in, and still am, when I do demos of songs now, they're really simple because I think if the song, you know, in its sort of naked way is not working, then it doesn't matter how many trumpets and drum loops and so on you add to it. So it was a very simple demo. So then it entered the Irish Song Contest and it won very easily. Uh, and I, I brought in a guitar player whom I knew uh, and who had a lovely voice to, to be with Paul. So it was like a conversation in a kitchen. And when it won the, uh, the vote in Ireland to be the song to go to the Eurovision, everybody was saying to me, oh, you have to use the orchestra now at the Eurovision. And I said, why? They said, because it's a big event and you have to make the song an event song. And I said, but that's the whole point. It is not an event song. It's a conversation in a kitchen. So I stuck to my guns and it went into the Eurovision and uh, against 26 or 27 other countries. And it got the highest vote from all the countries in Europe that any song had ever gotten up to that stage in the 40 or 50 years. And of course, then everyone said to me, that was a great idea. <laughs> all the ones who said to me, you need an orchestra were there saying to me, that was a great idea. So that was 1994. All right, let me stop you there, because for anybody that doesn't know, tell people what the Eurovision Song Contest is about. I know in Europe, it's very, very famous, but around the world, people might not know as much. So just explain what the contest is. It's a song festival that happens every year. It's been going, I think, for about 60 years now. And it's every country in Europe enters a song to represent that country. And the song can be in English or any language or one's own language. And once a year, there's this massive television event that's beamed out all over Europe and now to Australia and I believe to the United States. So your song competes against the songs of 26 other countries. They have juries in all of the countries who vote for their favorite song. And you end up then with, with a winner. And the television audience was about three to 400 million viewers of it. So it's mega. And it's actually on this week out of Liverpool. So that's it. It's a massive, massive program. It goes on for, for a while. And the winner gets crowned and the confetti comes down. And I we saw all of that when Emer was uh, on this program. Oh, yes. Hi, everybody. This is Robert Miller, your host. It's finally spring here in the United States. So I'm playing my song, Spring Dance, underneath this message. Spring is a time for renewal and growth. And I've just begun the third year of this podcast. It's been quite a ride so far. Over 170 episodes, more than 800,000 downloads, ranked in the top 1% of all podcasts with listeners in 200 countries. My guests have included famous musicians, actors, directors, broadcasters, corporate CEOs, and others. 
My goal with each is to have fun and entertain you, the audience. And of course, to inspire you to follow and succeed at your dream. As a professional musician with a dozen highly acclaimed albums and millions of video views and streams, I infuse my music into each episode. And the podcast has allowed me to introduce my music to a worldwide audience. If you haven't done so yet, please subscribe to the podcast so you get each episode when it airs. And also, please sign up for our weekly emails, which keep you up to date on everything. The links are in the show notes to each episode. And also, please check out our website at followyourdreampodcast.com. I want to thank you all for listening and keep on rocking. You know what? I think we're doing a disservice to the audience because we're talking about these great songs and they haven't heard them yet. So right now, underneath us, I am playing Rock and Roll Kids. We were the Rock and Roll Kids Rock and Roll was all we did And listening to those songs on the radio That was once upon a time Now we never seem to rock and roll anymore Tell us a little bit more about what your feeling was as this song went through the whole Eurovision process. Well, it was very exciting. And uh, uh, that year the contest was in Dublin because Ireland had won it for the previous two years. Ireland had won the contest for th uh, three years in succession. So I decided uh, not to go into the green room. And the green room is where all the artists and songwriters sit during the competition and where they wait while the votes come in. So I decided, well, I mightn't be here again. I want to be out front and hear and see my song performed. So that was special, and it was also the year of Riverdance. My friend Bill Whelan, who had written Riverdance, that was the act in the middle before the votes came in. And I wanted to see that as well. So it was, as the votes were coming in, early on we knew we had won, even before the final votes came in. So it was kind of surreal sitting there. And then, of course, the, um, the announcers were... I didn't come out on stage with the two singers because I, I wasn't in the green room. So they were all looking at me, where's the songwriter? And I was sitting down, sitting back, enjoying the, the applause and so on. So eventually I got onto the stage and um, it was wonderful. And, and the song has since been voted in Ireland by the listeners and viewers of RTE, the national radio station, as their favourite Eurovision winning song. And that, that happened just two or three years ago. So 30 years later, the song is still very much alive and working. That's remarkable. But it was a poorly written song. I made one serious mistake in it. Why do you say that? Because the opening line of the song is, I remember 62, I was 16 and so were you. And then it goes up to 19, uh, up to the 90s and now we're older. So 
I'm never going to get Willie Nelson to sing, you know, I remember 62, I was 16 and so were you, or Dolly Parton. Do you know what I mean? Uh, I don't think you have a problem there, though, given everything that you've said about that song. But I mean, here you you won the lottery, so to speak, with Rock and Roll Kids in 1994. And then you won it again two years later with The Voice. And we're playing that song now underneath us as well. So tell me what your your recollections are the second time you won. Well, everybody advised me against submitting another song again because they said the chance of, of you winning again are gazillions to one. But that kind of appealed to me. So I actually entered the voice for the 1995 competition and it didn't qualify in Ireland. So it was, this, it was deja vu story all over again. So I entered it in 1996 and it did come up. And the group that had done the demo for me, a wonderful um, traditional group called Dervish, who are still going really strong. I've had Dervish on the uh, podcast, in fact. Oh, have you? Oh, brilliant. Uh, so uh, they were on tour in Europe and uh, Emer has told you the story. I went to concert in um St. Patrick's Cathedral, I think it was, or Christchurch Cathedral, to hear this choral group because they were singing another of my songs called Winter, Fire and Snow, and Emer was the vocalist. And as soon as I heard her voice, I thought, she is the voice. So I approached her afterwards, rather tentatively. I went up to the stage, and she was picking up her music from the floor, and I said to her, have this song, would you be interested in singing it? And I I think she was kind of surprised at first, but I knew she'd be right. And then I put together this group of traditional musicians playing fiddles and uh, bowerons and, um, you know, traditional instruments. And that gave the song authenticity. So it was different from everything else. And Emer has told you the story like that. It was in Oslo was the Eurovision final that year. So it won very easily and it was like unbelievable that two out of three years all the songs that would be entered from all over Europe that I'd, I'd come up again and with quite a different song so that was a real thrill. Emer told me that when you approached her as you just mentioned he was very young at the time very inexperienced she said and she was so surprised that you helped her to sing that song well, she was, yeah, but I just, there was just something about her, her presence as well as her voice that told me that she could live the part. She could be the voice of our history and so on. And, okay, it took a little while until we both understood each other how I felt the song should be sung and her making adjustments. But she was, you know, extraordinarily sort of willing to listen and 
uh, adopt her style of singing somewhat. And we've written quite a few songs since then, and we still write together. We're still the closest of buddies, and uh, she has been a gift in my life. Well, she's a wonderful singer, and uh, I'm so glad for the success that the two of you have had uh, separately and together. All right, let's go to your biggie. You raise me up. Not to say that the others weren't big, but this one is just colossal. You raise me up so I can stand on mountains. You raise me up to walk on stormy seas. I am strong when I am on your shoulders. So we've talked a little bit about, you know, what happened with this song, but talk a little bit for us about writing it and then just how did it explode the way that it did? Okay, well, this was another kind of random thing. Uh, I've noticed in life that uh, if one is open to things happening and just creating good energy, good energy come, comes your way. So after The Voice, uh, I got signed to Warner Chapel Publishing in London and I was working on different songs and I had a meeting with them one day in London to what I was now working on. And what was beginning to happen, and I think the voice led me into this whole area of the elements and the spiritual world. I was writing these songs and this woman out of the mid 1800s in Ireland began to surface out of the song. It was like she was somebody real. And I told Warner Chapel the story and that it was set in the time of the Great Famine in Ireland. And so I came home, came back to Dublin, and I got a call the following morning. I think it was that was a Monday. I got a call on Tuesday morning to say, could I come back to London on Friday for a meeting in the boardroom of HarperCollins book publishers? <laughs> I said, well, if you guys are paying the airfare, I could, but what for? They said, the story you told us, could you send that on? Now, I had just given them a bit of historical background and uh, I had no story. So I sat up for the next three days and nights. I didn't go to bed and I wrote out a stream of consciousness story, beginning, middle and end. Flew over to London for this meeting at HarperCollins left my specs in the taxi so I couldn't read what I'd written. So went up to the boardroom in HarperCollins, threw all the books by very famous writers, Robert Ludlum, the whole lot of them. And I'm thinking, what the hell am I doing in here? You know, I'm trying to write songs. And so I went to the boardroom and there was a big long table. And at the end was this managing director in a pinstripe suit and a beautiful turquoise colored handkerchief sitting out of his pocket. And I had the busket and a strange thing happened to me. It's only happened to me once or twice before. I found myself in the far corner of the room, looking at myself, telling the story. It was the weirdest thing ever. And I knew before I finished, they were going to offer me. And they did. So I wrote three books uh, for HarperCollins. 
Uh, one was a number two bestseller in Ireland at Christmas week. So that was another sort of strange uh, diversion. So what was the question you asked me again? Well, this, no, in other words, the, the meeting was about HarperCollins uh, wanting to sign you as a, as a writer. That, as that a writer, was, yes. I see. It's an, another career for you. Another career, and I was trying to get songs out there. So as a result of that, Rolf Loveland, who is a Norwegian player and composer, uh, he has a group called uh, Secret Garden, mainly instrumental group. He was given a present of my book for Christmas. And he had a melody called Silent Story, which wasn't going to make the cut on their new album. So the violinist from the group, Fanula Sherry, who lived in Dublin, phoned me and said, we have this melody. Would you have a listen to it and see if you could come up with lyrics that Rolf had read my book, The Whitest Flower, thought I could do it. And at the time, I was on my second book. So I'd stopped writing songs. I'd been saying no to people. And I said to Fanula, I said, well, you know, I'm busy with my book at the moment. Where are you calling me from? And she mentioned a place in Dublin, Leopardstown. That was 10 minutes from where I lived. So I said, if I can come around now, listen to the melody, and if I like it, I'll try and do something. So I went around. I heard the melody, Silent Story. Sounded quite like Danny Boy to me. Parts of it uh, were that sort of Irish feel. And took it home. And don't ask me where or how, but that afternoon I got the title, You Raise Me Up. And I always then do the chorus first. So I wrote the chorus, and then I have somewhere for the verse to go. So I, I got a bit of a first verse. So I called them about midnight and I said, I think I have something here. Do you want to come over and listen? So they came over and I warbled away to the violin track that was too high a key for me. And the two of them just looked at each other and I knew we had something. So I finished the song off in the next fortnight, uh, put in a second verse which isn't normally sung except by the more classical singers and choral singers. And um, they went in the following week to win Middle Lane Studio with orchestra and all of that, and the song got recorded. So it was totally random, and it was a knife edge as to whether I went and listened to the song or not. And sure, we know, excuse me, we had no idea what would happen with it. What a fascinating story. I like the fact that you write the chorus first, because that's a little bit different than so many other songwriters. And that leads you into what you want to do with the verses, huh? Yes. Yeah. It makes it easy because then the verse inexorably right, arrives at the chorus. But I didn't get the last line of You Raise Me Up, which is probably the killer line. You raise me up to more than I can be. And I have all my written notes which fortunately I kept. And I could see the last line I had was, you raise me up and you're good for me or something like that. But it it didn't have that extra thing. And I can see where I had the lyric finished. And then I changed the last line to, you raise me up to more than I can be. And that was in May. In May. Your timing is good because that was in May of 2001. And then just went everywhere. 
it's a remarkable song. It's very inspirational. I think that's the the part that touches everybody's heart. Thank you. Again, it, it's a remarkable song, and it's had a remarkable history. So I want to congratulate you on all your success there. We have one other song that I wanted to raise and play a little bit of, Pete's Upon This Land. Talk a little bit about that. Yes, this is an, another random thing. All these things just seem to happen, and uh, I'm forever grateful that they do. Emer contacted me a few years ago to say that she was doing a concert with this group called the Dublin Brass Ensemble, and that they had done a brass arrangement of the voice and another of my songs I'd written in an Irish song called Crook on the Boshta, which is a burial place of unbaptized children in the mountains near where I live. And so she said, would you come to the concert? And I was a bit tentative about going because I couldn't see how a brass arrangement could suit particularly the Irish folk song. But I went and I was amazingly surprised at the the empathetic way that the arrangement was done. So I got in touch with the arranger uh, who's in the Dublin Brass Ensemble, even though she's a violinist, uh, Shuan Nigrifa. And I said to her, next time you're in the west of Ireland, knock into me and I'll show you where this burial ground is. So she came down and I showed her where the burial ground was. And, you know, we got in contact and she sent me a piece she had written about her family. And it had a sort of, you know, up-tempo piece at the start, then it had a slow air, and it finished then with a jig or a reel. And the piece in the middle, I just loved it. I just kept coming back to it. And I thought, oh, will I phone and ask her, can I put a lyric to it or not? Because the whole piece was dedicated to her family. And I thought, mm, I don't want to really interfere with that. So eventually I picked up the phone one day and I said, look, would you mind if I put a lyric to your beautiful melody? And she said, no, I wouldn't. And I did. And I called her and she came down and she liked it. And that uh, lyric was peace upon this land. And the interesting thing about it was that the voice, which was written in 1996, two years before the Good Friday Agreement, which was negotiated with, with the great help of uh, Bill Clinton and uh, the Americans, and brought peace to Northern Ireland and indeed to the whole country. So the Unionists and the Republicans all came together on Good Friday of 25 years ago, signed this document that brought peace. The arms, guns were put aside. And, and the, the voice was calling, bring me your peace and my wounds, they will heal. And I hadn't thought about that at the time I was writing the lyric to this, but this one is saying there is peace upon this land. When you take my hand, there's peace upon this land. 
And I realized then that in a way, this song was an answer to the call and the question raised in the voice. And it was the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement. And as, as you know, Bill Clinton and Hillary and Joe Biden and the whole lot came over to celebrate it. So in a way, this song closed the circle. And there's a really interesting add-on to this. There's a brilliant painter and artist in County Mayo called Tricia Slowey. And previously, she had painted lyrics and music of my songs into a visual art form. And I just thought, wouldn't it be nice to have this song painted and presented to President Biden when he was here? So she painted a sort of beautiful vision of Ireland and a couple holding hands and the doves of peace and put in the notes and the lyrics. That painting is now in the White House. What a remarkable story. I have to say, this has been just a wonderful interview with you. We're speaking here with Brendan Graham, one of the greatest songwriters, not just of Ireland, but in the world. And the fact that you've written so many incredible songs and they've had such great success, I want to compliment you on that. You deserve all of it. And the fact that you started it when you were 48 years old is even better, makes it all that much better. Can I say one other little thing? I forgot to mention this, that on Saturday in the mall at Washington, a song I wrote with an American composer called William Joseph, the song is called Oh America, is going to be performed by the New York Tenors, the U.S. Army Band, to honor the veterans of 50 years ago. It's part of the big commemoration, the Welcome Home commemoration in the Washington mall this Saturday. So. That was another lovely surprise. Fantastic. Well, again, I congratulate you on all your wonderful success as a songwriter and everything that has happened here. We have been speaking to Brendan Graham, the great Brendan Graham, as I like to say. And I want to thank you so much for being on this podcast. Well, thanks, Robert, and for the very intelligent and uh, leading on questions you asked me. Privileged to be here. My pleasure. And now we're going to listen again to that song of mine that started off the podcast. It's called The Gift Juliet Song. I want to thank you all for listening, and we will see you in the next episode. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast so you don't miss another inspiring episode. You can connect with Robert at robert at followyourdreampodcast.com. And you can hear more from his band at projectgrandslam.com and at thepgsstore.com.